0: Hello, and welcome to Picturing the Irish Landscape, Past and Future. I'm Dr. Stephanie Rourke, Senior Lecturer in Art History at the University of St. Andrews. This is a podcast that draws together several different ways of exploring Ireland's landscapes, especially around Cork, but also more generally. Through interviews with historians of art and literature, as well as climate scientists, we consider how people in the past used to understand and shape Ireland's forests and coasts, And we also discuss how Ireland's landscape might continue to change in the decades to come. Although much of this podcast is about the natural environments of Ireland, it's also apparent that you can never fully cordon off the country's natural histories from its human histories. In this episode, I focus on coasts not as geological phenomena, but as sites of human use and as subjects of creative human expression. Harbours in particular are interfaces, really, between the human and the natural, between the built environment and the sea, and between a specific port, and all the parts of the world to which it is connected through maritime transit. So when artists in the 18th and 19th centuries picture harbours like that of Cork, they were also visualizing a whole set of relationships and interconnections that the harbour makes possible. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Michael Waldron to discuss how artists have pictured the coast, especially the Cork Harbour, and what kinds of histories those pictures unfold. Michael, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me. Would you please introduce yourself to start us off?
1: Hi, I'm Michael Waldron, and I am Curator of Collections and Special Projects at Crawford Art Gallery in Cork.
0: You've recently curated an exhibition of Cork Harbour Scenes. Can you tell me a bit about it?
1: It, it is um, a historic collection of uh, mainly paintings um, that were presented to the gallery as a donation in 2021. And uh, this collection uh, comprises... Uh, paintings by four artists, uh, in particular, uh, George Mency Wheatley Atkinson, Henry Albert Hartland, Robert Lowe Stopford, and Sean Keating, who did not have a double barrel name. Um, and, uh, I suppose they tell us a story of Cork Harbor in this, in this case, um, a significant Harbor in the South of Ireland, um, over a period of about 80 years. So um, uh, we have, yes, we have some paintings from the 1840s in this collection, but it it spans right up to, I suppose, the start of the 20th century. And then there's a gap. And then we have a painting from 1960 as well. Um, There are other objects within that collection that are not part of the exhibition. um, But this is, I suppose, the first public viewing of that collection, which is now in public patrimony and in the care of Crawford Art Gallery as part of the National Collection of Ireland.
0: How were harbours and coasts traditionally represented?
1: It's an interesting question because I think it depends on where you are in the world. Um, <laughs> the That answer can be so very different. But views of Cork harbour or Irish harbours um, are are very particular. They come from a particular Western tradition. They are largely topographical. Um, their interest to viewers and possibly even the painters wasn't a kind of a painterly sense, although they are beautiful, um, beautifully painted, beautifully colored, full of rich detail and interest, visual interest but they are communicating a particular story. Um, and it is, I would, I would argue or would offer that they, it is a kind of a colonial story or an Imperial one. um, it is a story that is kind of a part of a larger machine. So Cork Harbor, in these paintings largely except for in one one case from 1960 is depicted as being part of the british empire and uh, and as part of the united kingdom so it's kind of doubly um significant in that sense and so what we see is how ireland how cork functioned as part of empire not not least kind of navally so in, in, in a naval tradition as part of the British Navy and naval ports, but also in terms of commerce, um, you have the trade, um, and, and that sort of shipping represented, uh, but it doesn't tell you a story of hardship. So you're not getting a sense of mass migration. You're not getting a sense of the, the stories that we hear of the great Irish famine. And Cork Harbour seeing over, I don't know, several decades, um, over a million people departing the island. So it's, it's a very um, particular lens, I would say. It is topographical um, and it is, I suppose, for the general viewer, but the general viewer who is of a particular political bent and a particular class.
0: You make a really good point about empire, I think, uh, especially because one of the themes that emerges across this podcast series is how the Irish landscape might seem to be about one specific locality, but often it's about relationships across space or between places, even very distant places. Um, So I think it might be helpful to hear some concrete examples, perhaps of what this looks like in practice. What sorts of things within a painting would tell the viewer that the harbour is embedded in empire.
1: So what are our signs and clues? Um, oh, well, I, I think there are a number of telling details. So I'm going to choose um, a painting uh, that will help us think about that. Uh, it's by George Mouncy Wheatley Atkinson. He was a self-taught painter um, and born in 1806. So he sees this kind of... Um, really kind of important kind of moment in irish history which is also part of british history um and in this painting um it's called naval frigate uh, off Hull Bowen, um from the 1840s i'll explain all that in a second what what did all those words mean um but it is a painting beautiful oil painting of a ship in profile. So we're seeing it side on. Um, it has uh, black and white stripes on its um, hull. Uh, it's very large, it has three masts, and it's, it's at anchor in the middle of a very placid harbor. So that tells us something. This is a large ship of the seas, um, but it is in port. And the, um, the sails are kind of hanging out to dry, as it were. Um, and so this is definitely a ship that is kind of, you know, maybe people are on shore leave, um, but it is in, in port. And the black and white stripes and the scale of the vessel tell us, and all of the gun ports being open, tell us that this is a, a naval vessel. It is a warship. Um, So that tells us that this in the middle of the painting is a significant um, aspect of what this harbour is and the harbour behind it kind of unfolds as a backdrop, even like a theatre set, um, like a tableau. Um, But in the background, you have everything that supports it. So you have naval warehouses or storehouses. So that's where all the provisions are being held for the Navy. You have Martello Towers, which were built in the early 19th century as a British response to a perceived French threat, particularly on the south coast of uh, England, but also the east uh, and south west of Ireland. Um, You have uh, another little glimpse of another sort of infrastructure which is uh historically an arsenal um so it we have all of these objects of built heritage essentially that tell us the story that connects to the the ship and this is all within the irish marine landscape so it is it's telling us all we need to know about how ireland functions in that system
0: Shifting gears a little, how do paintings of coasts and harbours uh, also reveal their role in things like trade and industry?
1: When I talk about maritime paintings and I'm, I'm with a group of people, we the first thing I like to do is to think about how it would be like, what would it be like to be on that ship that's being depicted? And what is our vantage point from that? because the artists who, who make these particular maritime paintings, they understood what it was to travel by, by water quite a lot. Um, you know, this is in an age, in some cases, when the railway is only in its infancy. Um, we don't have any motorways or highways or anything like that. So a lot of human movement is by, by sea. Uh, and and of course as an extension of that the the movement of goods uh in particular and if a ship is coming into port to deliver goods it's going to go out of port full of another another um cargo sometimes you know a dutch vessel might sail into cork harbor in the 18th century laden with bricks perhaps and that's the ballast to ensure that it has its its proper weight it unloads and then it leaves with butter and I don't know beef and salted beef and so on so these are the types of um I suppose exchanges um and I think when we look at a a maritime or marine painting or a view of a harbour where there is shipping and it's not necessarily naval and it's not necessarily leisure. The, the vessels are probably cargo or transport, human transport. Um, and they don't always tell us what's on these vessels, but we can kind of extrapolate, you know, connect it with historical records to kind of, to suggest what might be on those vessels. Um, but when you're looking at these landscapes, the ship seems, they seem quite benign. It's mainly that these ships are themselves being represented as indexes of the success of the harbour. So they are coming and going. There are steamships, there are ships of sail, um, and they are coming from far and wide. We can identify these vessels. They are plying the trade between Cork and Bristol Liverpool, Glasgow, um, perhaps Southampton, perhaps further, um, perhaps south to to France, Spain and Portugal, um, perhaps west to the Americas.
0: I think those sorts of kind of geographical interconnections are so vital to understand when we're looking at these paintings. Uh, A bit unrelated, but uh, why are there so many scenes of shipwreck?
1: while it may be a, a safe, natural harbour, getting to it is perilous. <laughs> um, and there are two paintings in the Port of Cork collection by Henry Albert Hartland. Um, and he came from a, a family of plants people, you know, gardeners and, 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 and uh, plant growers. Um, but he was the black sheep as an artist um, and painted these wonderful scenes of, of shipwrecks but they were real real shipwrecks so they were they were shipwrecks that were known they were shipwrecks that were written up in the newspapers and they were also shipwrecks observed by uh, the public who heard about the wreck would go to, co- to the coast and observe the the ship as it went down perhaps some were going to salvage who knows um but he, he depicts two particular shipwrecks. One is the SS city of New York and the other is the SS Ibis. And the SS Ibis was the largest ship ever built in Cork Harbor, um, at that time. And so it was the pride of, of this part of the world. And yet it floundered just outside the mouth of the Harbor on a rocky sea because its steam engine broke and it had no way to, to, I suppose, um, steer itself to safety. Um, and, and so he is interested in that, that narrative. They're popular, of course, people want to see, you know, we, we think of the, of Titanic, (laughs) whose last port of call was Cork Harbour. Um, it's, we think of Titanic, and we think of the sinking of it, and we think of depictions of it in, in, in posters, in paintings, in in um, in, in movies, um, and that that attraction to these tragic stories, um, you know, were bound up in, in paint in the eighteen sixties and seventies. Um, but it is a rocky coast, so the southwest of Ireland, um, moving from the Celtic Sea through to the the Wild Atlantic, um, it's a rocky coast known for its safe havens. So you would have um, Waterford, Dungarvan, Yall, and Cork Harbours. And then further west, Kinsale, I'm going to skip a few, um, Castlehaven, Roaring Water Bay, um, Bantry Bay, which was always thought that to be large enough to, to shelter the entire British Navy. Uh, and then around the west coast of Ireland to Limerick. So... It's a jagged coast, um, a coast that also allows for hiding um, and piracy. And that's, I suppose, where coast guards come from that that need to uh, police the coast.
0: In addition to the maritime paintings that you've been talking about, what other kinds of coastal visualizations from this time do you think are particularly interesting?
1: I remember while working on um uh, the deep maps project um some years ago in University College Cork um we looked at a lot of ordnance survey maps that were made in the 19th century and some of them had these amazing elevation views of the coast so that they were also aids to navigation um you could see all of the different soundings Um, so sorry, they weren't ordnance survey maps; they were navigation maps. But, um, you had all of the sounding, so you knew what the depths of the of the coast were. You knew where you might run into trouble. You had the profile in elevation of what the coast looked like, so that you wouldn't confuse it with other parts of the coast. Um, and particularly, I don't know, in other parts of the world, but on along the Irish coast, each lighthouse. Has a different color, um, color combinations, uh, in its paintwork, so that you know where you are based on its design. So I think one is all black, one is black with one white stripe, one is you know white with two black stripes. So you, these were different ways of signaling to those who weren't familiar with these coasts this is where you are. Um, I think that's really fascinating because to the untrained eye, one headland might look like another. But if you're rounding that headland, you could come in for a big surprise if you think you're somewhere else.
0: Yes, I imagine quite a stressful surprise. Uh, Well, I understand that you've done some work on the Bantry Estate. Can you just explain briefly what that is and talk about what sorts of visual coastal records uh, you found of interest?
1: Uh, the Bantry uh, estate um, is, I suppose, the the family estate of the um, the White family um, who were uh, based in, I suppose, the area of Bantry Bay, which is in the southwest of Ireland in, in County Cork. So it is the southwesternmost parts of... Um, of, of of this part of the world, um, and the Atlantic stretches out uh, uh, before it. They were a titled family um, who amassed considerable wealth in the 18th and early 19th centuries. They were involved in, I suppose, rebuffing the um, French uh, armada in 1796. Um, but the storm of that December, 1796 really did most of the (laughs) rebuffing. Um, But so they were very much part of the establishment, the ascendancy in Ireland in in the 19th century, built a very fine um, residence that overlooks Bantry Bay. And the Bantry Estate Collection, which is now part of University College of Cork's special collections holdings, um, brings together all of the materials um of that estate um that were extant. So correspondences, uh, maps, rent books uh, and 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 family ephemera as well. I had a lovely opportunity to um study the Bantry Estate Collection um in the Special Collections Library of University College Cork and within that are the sketchbooks of um the white family of Bantry House um and among them are these beautiful maybe i think 1820s um sketches of of the land that is i suppose in their uh, possession or at least in their immediate vicinity so you have beautiful pencil sketches looking out on the i suppose the picturesqueness of bantry bay of the islands that populate it little rowing boats that seem to be the same rowing boat popping up in every every single um every single drawing as if it were you know if you were drawing a picture of a landscape and you put in a bird and in a sort of a slightly v shape um the the little rowing boat appears in that same sense in in these sketchbooks but then they also show um again as you have mentioned signs of industry um how do you make the land productive how do you cultivate how do you improve uh, and so there's a wonderful view of the alihis um copper mines so you have the the mine heads um as kind of signs of built heritage to our eyes but these were functioning mines um 200 years ago um and you have that incredible linkage between i suppose how the landscape unfolds before the eye looking out to sea but in the middle ground you have these um uh interesting i suppose is 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 a nice way kind of visually interesting structures that are alien to our urban environments and even alien to our um, uh, rural landscapes. And yet in this very specific area, like Cornwall as well, you have these um, kind of slightly alien structures um, that indicate that there is activity underground.
0: These are deeply historical records in some ways. I'm curious, what strikes you as contemporary about these ways of visualizing the coast
1: um staying with bantry bay um it seems you know when you look at the map of ireland um and bantry bay is just between these fingers of peninsulas that reach out into the atlantic um you it's an unlikely place perhaps to our imaginations or our intellects to think that this might be a place of um of interest scientifically and yet um the whole west court coastline like any coastline is rich with information if if we want to put it in those terms and in the um i think the early 19th century um there was a woman from bantry bay a little town called bally and um her name was ellen hutchins and um, she uh, was so interested in the natural world that she documented in, like, botanical studies, um, the kind of the uh, the flora of, of of her native place, and um, I suppose in conversations with, you know, the gentleman scientists of the time. Um, she was encouraged to continue that work, but to particularly look at seaweeds. So she would, uh, walk along the, the, the coastal inlet that is Bantry Bay, studying the seaweeds that were in abundance. And in, in some cases were collected for, um, for putting on the land as a sort of a cheap, um, readily accessible fertilizer which you know had to be often replaced um sometimes for the poorest people uh, also as a source of sustenance um we think of them as seaweeds today as you know wonderful tasty garnishes on you know expensive meals or you know products for face creams but in that time they were had a very different we had a very different relationship with them and particularly ellen hutchins started to identify the various types and she, I can't remember how many she collected, but I think it's over a thousand specimens that she recorded uh, visually. Um, and it's an extraordinary feat to think um, that she was doing this uh, and sending these specimens and, and her, her studies of them. Um, to Dublin, to London, and so on. Um, so that knowledge was coming back from the edges of, uh, of, of the earth, <laughs> as it were, and going back into feeding this knowledge machine in the societies of these capital cities. Um, so I think they are an extraordinary visual record that come from coast that are not about people They're not about ships and politics, but they're about things that we're still thinking about today, which is how do these ecosystems work? What are perhaps the services that they, they, um, provide, but also how can we learn from them, um, and their multiplicity and having recorded them, you know, 200 years ago, have we lost some, which inevitably I imagine we have. Um, so those sorts of recordings are, visual recordings are, I think, thrilling to a modern or contemporary mind.
0: This is a lovely note to close on, um, because it draws back together some of the strands of the human and natural histories of landscape. I think we tend to assume it's very modern to be concerned about the entwinement of the human and the natural, um, but... What you've just discussed is a beautiful reminder that 200 years ago, this relationship was understood to be just as important as it is today. Um, Michael, thank you so much for speaking with me. Um, And I'd also just like to encourage our listeners to pay a visit to the wonderful Crawford Art Gallery uh, the next time they're in court. This podcast was funded by a Saltire Fellowship from the Royal Society of Edinburgh in collaboration with University College Cork. The music was composed and recorded by Adam Edinson, and I thank him for permission to use it here. It was produced and edited in the spring and summer of 2022 by me, Stephanie O'Rourke. Enormous thanks to our guests for sharing their research to us and to the Royal Society of Edinburgh for sponsoring the project. And thanks to you for listening.